G'day. Welcome to Lunch Money, uh, your online and social media home for special situations, workouts, and capital raising professionals. My name is Nick Samios. I'm the fund manager here at Hermes Capital, and I am your live stream and podcast host. So uh, a very, very warm welcome to you. Well, of late, uh, I'm sure that you would agree that the uh, finance and economics news has gone from uh, the unfathomable to the inexplicable. Um, this week, when you look around financial markets and, uh, and what's going on in the economy, we had Elon Musk buying $1.5 billion worth of Bitcoin, and I'd love you to explain that to me. Um, when you sort of get to the granular level here in, a, here in Australia, um, we, all went, you know, we all went to the beach over Christmas expecting to come back to see a, a plethora of small business restructuring uh, appointments under the new small business restructuring regime, and uh, we, we expected to see an avalanche of, uh, of wind-up notices. But again, inexplicably, uh, none of this seems to have happened. The economy seems to be floating along. In fact, there's talk of recovery and uh, et cetera, et cetera. Meanwhile, we've got money printing, uh, record low interest rates. So today uh, I have a very special guest, uh, Warren Hogan, who, uh, who's joining us to uh, help us to try and understand what's going on. I'll get to introducing uh, Warren very shortly. But first, uh, I would like to uh, ask you to uh, share, like or subscribe our podcast or our live stream, depending on where you're watching us. Uh, if you subscribe, then uh, you, won't miss, you won't miss a single episode and give it a share so that your friends can, uh, can participate in the fun as well. And just a reminder that our best question uh, on the live stream receives this, the, uh, the rare and special edition uh, lunch money mug um, out of which uh, all hot beverages uh, taste that much more delicious and they become more nutritious. So if you ask a, a good question, you may find yourself uh, on the receiving end of one of those. Uh, so with no further ado, I would like to introduce our special guest today, Warren Hogan. G'day, Warren. How are you? I am very well. Thank you, Nick. Thanks for having me on today. Thank you very much for joining us. Uh, Warren Hogan is the principal of EQ Economics, a micro-advisory firm specialising in strategic planning and forecasts for Australian businesses. Uh, he's also the economic advisor to Judo Bank. Uh, he's been an industry professor at UTS and uh, also well known as uh, a long-standing chief economist in the past to the ANZ Bank. So we're very privileged to have you uh, to have you here, uh, Warren. Thank you very much. Just before we get into um, into your sort of main content, I'm just interested to know what is it that keeps you busy as the uh, you know a, a, as uh, EQ Economics. What's the sort of stuff that kicks across your desk? Yeah, well, it's uh, it's a sort of a micro advisory firm, which uh, essentially means it's me. Um, I've only just sort of started to focus on it full time now. Um, and I'm doing a bit of everything, actually. I'm obviously monitoring the economy um, very keenly and, and constructing sort of outlooks and forecasts and pathways to the future. Um, but I do industry work, um, do assessment of markets. And look, there just is no shortage of, of information um, and uncertainty. And that's really what it is. It's about bringing those two things together and trying to make sense of it for business people, for policymakers, for everyday people so there's a lot a lot going on at the moment as we all know and um and and this world is 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 being buffeted by a lot of unusual forces well there's no doubt about that look what caught my eye the other day and prompted me to reach out to you was um, something that you don't see a lot of economists say and it was in one of your tweets and you said not with my money um and it seemed to me well here's an economist that actually understands that money just doesn't 
you know, it's it's our money. It's the government's sort of uh, seem to willy nilly uh, print and abuse uh, abuse what it is. And it's not very often you get an economist say, "Hey, what what with my money?" And uh, that really caught me up my eye. So I asked you to come on on board today. And so let's uh, you've, you've you've put uh, put a little presentation together for us. So why don't we uh, why don't we dive into that? Yeah, sure. Well, look, I thought you know one of my hobby horses uh, for a number of years now. Um, has been what I call a loss of um, direction for monetary policy. It's obviously a global phenomenon, uh, but it's uh, live and well here in Australia. And of course, this uh, a key part of it links in with this uh, part of the business community. It's related to insolvency. Um, so, look, I think it's worth just running through this issue. So, yeah, I think we all know that money is cheap. They're, they're Printing money, however you want to term it, um, unconventional monetary policy. Gone are the days when all a central bank did in terms of helping to manage the performance of the economy was decide whether to increase or decrease interest rates. We now have this plethora of uh, programs of money being injected into the economy at the directly into the banking system. So here in Australia, that's through the TFF or into the government bond markets through quantitative easing or QE. Um, can, can, I, can I just ask you one question there before you go on, Warren? Because mm. we got one question from one of our viewers, uh, it was before the show, from Winston. If we've got Winston's first question, I mean, you just said that, you know, it's a global phenomenon. And Winston uh, wanted to know, are central banks around the world coordinating their interest rate and QE actions? What, what, what do you um, think about that? It's a bit uh, of a conspiracy yeah. theory. Yeah, look, it's not a conspiracy theory um, in the sense that it's very transparent. The, as, as Phil Lowe, the governor of the RBA, has said a couple of times in the last week, and we have had a lot of communications from him in the last week, um, is that he's he, sort of the G20 central bank governors, you know, the top 20, let's call it. I think it's probably more than that. They speak every six weeks in a, in a forum. I think a lot of them speak directly bilaterally. You know, is it coordinated? Is it that they sit there and plan out each policy move to do together? The answer is no, they don't. But are they completely all on the same page with what's happening? Yes, they are. So it's not a conspiracy theory, but there certainly is a coordination going on out there. And it's very important because when you have an open financial system, when international capital is perfectly mobile, as economists would say, um, you know, Phil Lowe and the RBA and the Australian dollar, we're, we're just price takers in a world of money. Yeah. Uh, yeah. What happens in America, Japan and Europe is the most important. So there's a lot of reasons why we need to be coordinated, but there, there's a lot of repercussions of that too. Okay, well, I'll come back to Winston had a follow-up question, which we won't go to right now. I, I've broken your stride there, so my... Uh, let's, no, let's no problem. Yeah. Well, let's just get stuck into it. This is essentially yeah. the real short-term interest rate, so that's the interest rate as we know it, minus inflation, basically, um, and real economic growth, which is those GDP numbers that are reported every three months. This is expressed in terms of annual growth. Now, my view is that these two things need to match up. And what type monetary policy is, is when you take the central bank raises interest rates so that the real interest rates above economic growth, and that means it's tight financial conditions and people stop investing and this sort of thing. Or conversely, if you want to ease monetary policy, you take the real interest rate below economic growth. 
my view is that this is a very important benchmark that is often um, underappreciated because of this sort of almost slavish adherence to inflation targeting since 19, early 1990s. And a lot of people and a lot of the problems we face with monetary policy is a result of the fact that a lot of economists say, forget about this schematic. Um, the interest rates are, or monetary policy is tight and interest rates are too high if inflation is not going up to where you want it to be. On this presumption that central banks are the only thing that control inflation. Now, I'm not going to get into it in detail, but I think that proposition is false. Globalisation, technology, a lot of other factors influence inflation. Anyway, what's happened is I call it the golden era from the early 90s and through to the GFC where you can see here in Australia, it's the same in America and in many countries around the world, that those two, interest, the interest rate and the rate of growth matched up pretty well, you know. Yeah, Ian McFarlane in the old days, Glenn Stevens, they would move them around a little bit, give us a bit of rate cut here, a bit of rate tightening there, but they broadly matched up. But since the GFC, we've started to see this divergence. Now, this is much more prominent in places like the United States, and this is what I call persistently easy monetary policy and what might otherwise be called... Um, money printing and so forth. Obviously, this is just the interest rate part, not those unconventional programs. So what's the problem? This is the connection between this easy money, what's going on in your industry, and the real world of um, the real and the economy. And if you go to the next slide, you'll see basically since those two lines when diverged, since interest rates dropped below the rate of economic growth, you have seen a drop-off in bankruptcies. Now, that red line, this is just the ASIC data for external administrations. Hmm. From 1999 to 2013, that red line is essentially an annual growth rate of 5.5%, which is the annual growth rate in nominal terms of the economy over that long period of time. Right. So what that's telling you is that every year, a pretty consistent proportion of businesses fail. We have capital turnover. Hmm. So people think of insolvency as a bad thing. I see it as a necessary evil in a market economy or at its extreme form, capitalism. But because interest rates have become below a market level, become persistently easy, in monetary policies become persistently easy, you're not getting as much capital turnover. You're not getting the same rate of insolvency because insolvency is the mechanism through which unviable firms are knocked out of the economy. And, of course, this has a whole bunch of repercussions for the performance of the economy. The so-called zombie firms, there's more and more work coming out of Japan and Europe where this phenomenon has been going on for a lot longer that show that these weak firms, if allowed to survive, drag down productivity and wages and inflation across the industry they're in and inevitably across the economy. Can I, can I ask you, Warren, the, the, the zombie phenomenon. I mean, I, I used to work for uh, Sanwa Bank, a Japanese bank, back in the 90s. And, you know, Japan suddenly went into this, this sort of comatose uh, zero growth, and it lasted a long time. I mean, yeah. how long did that go for? And, and are we in for the same thing? Uh, yeah, well, Japan, you could argue, still there. Japan's yeah. systems are a lot different to ours. They're, they're big banks, they're big businesses, and their government sort of seem to be a bit more in uh, coordination, for lack of a better word. Um, but that being said, yeah, exactly right. Their, 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 their bubble burst, their bank's balance sheets were impaired. 
They had no growth. They got an aging population. They the prescription back in the late nineties, early noughties, and this was the first country to really do quantitative easing and take rates to zero. And my argument is that when you take rates too low, you get to a point where it becomes counterproductive. It hurts the performance yeah. of the economy. And that's exactly what's happened in Japan. A lot of capital has been stuck in poor performing companies. Those poor performing companies are stuck on bank balance sheets. Um, and the whole system is pretty lethargic. And I think that's exactly where we're headed. Um, or that's one of the risks of where we're headed over the next decade. There's all the signs are, are that we're going in that direction now. All right. Well, we'll just pick up. Uh, we'll pick up where we left off there. Yeah. So that's the Australian data. If, if we have a look at the next one, it's it's just a comparison around the world. So you can see that um, in Germany, um, we've seen this decline in bankruptcies now since the GFC because European interest rates have been at zero for an extended period of time. And in the United States, you know, the home of capitalism, one of the most sort of brutally efficient economies in the world, they too have had a big decline in bankruptcies. So anywhere and all the advanced economies, and Australia was actually holding out. Phil Lowe at the Reserve Bank was trying to resist this. The pandemic has seen him just go all in and um, sort of the only thing he's really pushing back on now is negative interest rates. But you can see this is a global phenomenon. Actually, if you look at the next chart, this is fascinating data from the International Monetary Fund that was just released a couple of weeks ago showing what happens through a normal global recession, and they're taking data from 13 different advanced economies, um, to bankruptcy. And you can see that in the global financial crisis, bankruptcy surged. In a typical recession, and I presume they're looking at the last sort of 30 or 40 years, bankruptcies gather pace over the sort of the, the following couple of years after you have the recession commence. But here, of course, in the great lockdown, you know, we've seen this collapse in bankruptcies. And, of course, that's not the monetary policy story. That's the deferrals, which are the unique feature of this downturn, the fact that governments all around the world have put loan deferrals in. But, of course, it, it continues a trend we've been seeing now for anywhere between five years and ten years um, of lower bankruptcies, lower capital turnover in the economy. I tell you what, I wish you could have given us this slide a year ago because we could have taken three months off at least uh, to, to sort of improve our golf handicaps. I think a lot of people in insolvency and in corporate restructuring and special situations where, you know, I know myself, it's like, well, I'm just going to happen tomorrow, tomorrow, tomorrow. It's going to be September and then December. But but it, it is, I mean, have we ever seen this before, this sort of thing? You know, that that downward blue, uh, that downward blue chart of, uh, of the, of what did you call it, the great lockdown? Is there any yeah. precedent? No. So, you know, these sorts of deferrals are, are really the domain of third world countries that get themselves into debt crises, Argentina or what have you in the, in the, in the, in the modern era in the last 50, 60 years. I mean, I'm not aware of uh, loan deferrals and, you know, sort of the ceasing of the bankruptcy mechanism being used as a policy tool anywhere in the world. It's smart and it was smart in terms of this downturn uh, because of the nature of the pandemic and the restrictions put on the economy, and as we're seeing, um, it's 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 playing out well. A lot, you know, there's a, I think there's a, a few opportunistic um, deferrals going on early in the piece, but the the numbers here in Australia show that they've come right down. They've sort of got down to a level. The, the sort of the sixty four thousand dollar question now is whether or not the so one point nine percent of loans in the banking system as of December that are in deferral still. 
uh, come March when the deferral ends, uh, what's the credit quality there? And I think we will get a spike, of course. I think Matt Coman in his uh, re report this week, the update for CBA results sort of suggested that. But no, we haven't seen this before as far as I know. Um, but of course, in terms of that broader trend that I just described, we also haven't seen that before. We haven't seen a decade of declining bankruptcies. And, and I don't think it's a healthy sign. I mean, a, a reporter, um, actually, I think it'd be familiar to most of you, Elise Morgan at the ABC, I was speaking to her about this process and we've spoken about it a lot over recent years. Um, but she said, capitalism without bankruptcy is a bit like Catholicism without hell. Um, it doesn't doesn't really work. So <laughs> these are unique circumstances. Yeah, I guess uh, one of the things, uh, you know, particularly when I talk to insolvency practitioners, uh, one of the concerns that they bring up from time to time is that, you know, you, you're, uh, if you've got a, a good business, well, there's two elements. And as, as you uh, highlighted in uh, in your paper uh, for, the, for the CIS uh, on the consequences of all of this, uh, I mean, one of the things is that you've got a company, firstly, you've got companies that deserve to live competing with companies that really should be out of business and so you've yeah. got the inefficient allocation of resources. But you've also got the worry that good companies, you know, good inverted commerce companies are in good faith trading with, you know, zombie companies and they're extending them trading terms. But when the music stops, you know, you're going to have this contagion effect. But is the music going to stop? Well, no. And, and well, look, this is the great issue I think right now because Japan and Europe, the music hasn't stopped as I alluded to before. And they have, you know, they're not really capitalist economies. They're social democracies where the government has quite a heavy hand to play in an otherwise free market economy. But one of the standout features of countries like the United States, the United Kingdom, Australia, Canada, New Zealand, I presume, is that we do have a capitalism where our banking system does face up to its problems and we do sort of, you know, clean up balance sheets periodically, usually through recession. So really, we're at a fascinating point in our history here because you know, whether Japan and Europe keep along this path is one thing, but now that these other countries look to be flirting with this path of sort of reducing the vibrancy of the market system um, through, you know, basically short-circuiting the bankruptcy mechanism, um, you know, is, 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 is that going to be resisted? And I, I don't know the answer. I mean, I think in the United States it's, it's, it, it, it's, it'd be hard to see them continue down this path. But the history is once you get into this, and the thing is it locks you into a lower growth world is my view, is that mm -hmm. I can show you a chart, but, you know, the loss of insolvency, the loss of that capital turnover means you lose productivity and you lose growth. Yeah. And I think there's a whole lot of social issues. You lose real wage growth, you lose living standard improvements. But, yeah, this is a long-term view of some measures of productivity here in Australia. And right. you can see that between you know, 1980 and 2010, there's, there's there's been a characteristic change. Productivity growth has become less volatile, but it, it was all pretty steady between one and a half and two or wh however you want to measure it. And in the last five or six years in particular, it's, it's, it's halved. And now that all the other measures of productivity around the world are telling you the same thing. So you sort of lock yourself in a lower growth world. Um, and, you know, I don't know how sustainable that is in, a, in, a, in cultures, particularly in places like America. 
if you were uh, if you were talking to, uh, I mean, a lot, a lot of the large insolvency firms that you're starting to see some personnel changes, and they're, you know, they're getting. I called it uh, some movements with marquee players, but they're they're definitely thinking that that they 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 are going to get busy. I mean, does someone need to? To lobby uh, Scomo to uh, to get you know that that we do need this churn of capital for capitalism to be successful and for for growth to happen. I mean, what, what you're saying is that that really it's almost like ploughing you know ploughing last year's harvest into the ground to to get a better crop next year. It is. It's about freeing up capital to go from its least productive to its most productive uses, and it's been a hallmark of our society, particularly in the last forty years. I mean, the the great reforms of the eighties. The opening up of economies and all of this, so, uh, yeah, that was essentially associated with a, a more efficient operation of the economy. And when we're now dulling that, and and you know, we're trying to get the payoff right between you know an efficient economy that produces you know innovation and productivity and rising living standards versus an economy that you know doesn't collapse every ten years and a lot of people lose their jobs. I mean, I think it goes beyond that. I think one of the features of the Modern economy is, is is being the bailing out of the financial system, um, and this is part of that story. But you know, probably beyond the scope of this discussion. Yeah. But yes, yeah, so I think, and I actually think Scomo and and, and the treasurer Frydenberg they understand this. Right. They understand this more so than I think the governor appears to want to admit. And I think it's probably potentially a source of tension between the two. Look, one of my uh, one of my colleagues uh, was saying that he really in, in insolvency was saying he really wants to see uh, he'd like to see an early election so that uh, you know Scamo can whoever wins uh, can sort of do what's needed rather than necessarily get some fresh air. I mean, we we sort of went into a technical recession and supposedly we're out of it. It's 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 certainly the people I talk to. It's a little bit hard to believe. But what, mm. what do you? Yeah, so the governor of the Reserve Bank sort of gave his reasoning for why the turnaround in Australia um, has, has just surprised everyone, yeah, universally. You know, six months ago, we could not have thought uh, we were going to get the kind of results in employment, spending, and particularly housing um, that we're getting. Um, it's, it's beyond the upside risks for anyone, including the Reserve Bank. He said... Yeah, the virus hasn't been too bad here. Yeah, that's fair enough, but I don't think it's a big reason. He said fiscal policy was a little bit more stimulatory than they thought, which I don't buy because, if anything, JobKeeper was overestimated at the start. They thought it was going to be $130 bill and it was only $70 bill. Yeah. And he said that Australians have adapted uh, much better than they thought. So I don't know what he thought of Australians before, but, yeah. But to be fair to him, I think that's right. I think we've all been pretty amazed at our capacity to spend uh, money even though we have not allowed to leave our houses. But, look, my view of this, and maybe the governor's just not comfortable talking about publicly, is that, you know, we overestimated how severe um, the disruption would be. And the reason is, is those deferrals. We've never seen it before. And in a, in a market economy, in a capitalist system, what causes sort of economic, severe economic circumstances, a vicious cycle uh, forming up is bankruptcy, whether at the personal or business level. And we short-circuited that. And it was utterly appropriate given the circumstances and, and one of the most powerful tools I think we've ever seen. But then we've gone and done, you know, we've thrown the kitchen sink at it in terms of the size of the wage subsidy, other stimulus payments to our households, other cash flow and liquidity support to business. And 
Look, the last time we saw monetary and fiscal policy really combining together was pre the GFC in this country, and a lot of people probably forget about it, but we actually had an inflation problem in 2007, 2008. Mm-hmm. The GFC sort of saved our bacon in a way. But I think really that deferral process combined with this, the magnitude of the policy is we've, we've potentially overcooked it. You know, we've done too much and the economy is roaring back. Well, let me let me flash up. Uh, let me flash up a question here from uh, from Sule, who says, given that uh, given the decline in business failure numbers uh, by in excess of fifty percent in twenty twenty, uh, so, so basically, that half, half the business failures in twenty twenty, where are they all hiding? I mean, if I went, I, we won't go back to your graph, but if you look at that graph where the the blue line was declining, um, you know, theoretically, there's a gap there. Where where are all these businesses hiding? Do you think? Well, they're hiding on the bank deferral programs um, and the banks I think for six months now have been trying to get businesses you know have that honest conversation you know especially small businesses um, but putting the deferral program aside and looking back to the, the concept of interest rates that are much lower than what a market interest rate would be and you could argue for a lot of small and medium businesses that isn't the case because the, the spreads are quite high but the the reality is is that there's a lot of businesses that can survive when their core funding cost is four or five percent, but they couldn't survive if it was nine or ten percent. Yeah, and, and that's I think part of this process. So at the moment, the, the the deferral program, the pandemic impact, the so-called zombies or the weak businesses are sort of, if you want to call it hiding, they're hiding in those deferral programs, and and they're going to finish at the end of March and. You know, it'll be very interesting to see it. It's, it's, there's, you know, Westpac in ANZ have got some big exposures there. Um, the, all the big four, obviously, have got a lot to deal with because just the sheer size of them. So, in the bank, in order for them to take any sort of enforcement action, it virtually, you know, I don't think this is literally true, but it almost needs to be signed off at board level. I heard that uh, from someone the other day who's in touch with the ATO that supposedly for them to take action, you know, it almost needs to be signed off from director level. So all the discretion down the down the line for uh, taking any sort of enforcement action has been pulled back. Um, mm. so, 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 so there's all of that. The second part of Winston's question, um, who was asking about the, the central banks uh, coordinating, um, his second part of his question, because you mentioned, you know, we talked about COVID, you know, with all that, the measures that were taken. Australia quarantined itself from the rest of the world when it came to COVID-19. Can we do the same against money, money printing and currency debasement? Should we unfloat the dollar and go back to fixing it? Yeah, well, look, it's it's a it's a question that is worth uh, thinking about, definitely. And 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 from the responses from the governor and both the parliamentary testimony and questions and speeches and so forth, is that yeah, I don't think they really want to have that conversation. Um, they see the benefits to doing, you know, remaining sort of an open. Uh, financial system uh, massively outweighing the the costs of us having to toe the line with global cheap money, I presume. Or alternatively, the cost to fixing the exchange rate and putting a wall up to global capital are going to be much higher than the benefits to um, being able to run our own monetary policy. So, look, I think it's worth having the conversation. I, I, I actually agree with the RBA. I think we should have the conversation. I think very high-powered analysts like the people at the RBA should be 
leading the conversation. But, you know, it's it, 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 we, we don't know the full cost yet. I mean, I, I've been talking about this for three years. When I first raised it, people looked at me like I was a heretic. Um, I'm getting a little bit more traction in the mainstream in the last 18 months or so. And I've, I can give you a full list. It's not just this insolvency and productivity story. It's it's forcing older Australians to stick their retirement savings into high risk investments, which well, can go well, up. well, let's just let's just touch on that for a minute. I mean, we had this comment from Neil Cusson, who's uh, recently joined Core Cordis uh, as insolvency partner. You know, shame for retirees on record low rates for a long period ahead. A real problem for them. I mean. Good luck on trying to to, to sort of uh, you know uh, pay your foxtel bill uh, every month and put food on the table on when you're earning 0.1 percent or whatever or whatever it is. Uh, and, and the trouble then again going back to your CIS article, you talked about you know one of the issues, uh, one of the risks being that uh, people. I can't remember what your exact words were, but people are yield hungry, basically, and so we're seeing a proliferation of new lenders. Uh, I mean, we've been at this for, for 11 years, so I'm sure you weren't talking about us uh, mm. when you were talking about the unregulated, um, et cetera. But uh, it does mean that people are, are going to get riskier with their with their nest eggs, and what, what do you think? Yeah, well, that, that's exactly right, and, and, and I think... The, the big question in 2021 is whether the real flow of money out of bank deposits, which are earning nothing, um, whether that goes into, into residential property. And, and, and we know every, every society has its what I call asset price weakness. Mm. In America, it's the S&P 500 or the equity market, probably better classified as the NASDAQ these days. But anyway, it's equities. Here in Australia, I don't think any of us will doubt that our weakness when it comes to Asset prices is residential property, um, and if you know you got a bit of money, you know you got a million bucks and it's sitting there earning 0.6 percent, or oh, sorry, you can get 0.9 if you got a million yep. bucks, maybe. Yeah. Uh, but your tax advisor tells you, well, if you go and buy this property and you know you can rent it out, and it's this, that, and the other, and Bob's your uncle after tax, you're getting triple your return. And then the people go, well, you're done. So I think that, look, I think that's not too bad because property doesn't tend to go down huge amounts in this country, but the higher it goes, potentially the further it falls. The thing I'm worried about is the old school people getting conned into facing building spaces that are stuck stand people are necessarily doing it in their best interest. Yeah. And, you know, we've seen that time and time again. And, and equities are a classic example, going and putting what money that should be in a bank deposit mm. into a tech stock. Well, yeah, we won't go to that. I mean, GameStop was a bit of a, a bit of a sort of a, a rebellious thing where people were happy to smoke their money, I think. But we won't just touch on that. Listen, you did say something very interesting there. You know, I follow a lot of guys on, on Twitter. I mean, you've got your Chris Joyce, for example, who, uh, you know, who, who always seem to be bullish uh, on property. Um, and then there's a bunch of other sort of uh, budding, budding economists uh, there on Twitter that are, that are always decrying, um, you know, the, the housing bubble. Uh, I mean, but you're not using the bubble word. You don't. You don't think that that uh, that we have a bubble. No, I spent spent twenty years in the Australian banking system, so you know I, I'm I'm banned from using the word bubble when it comes to no. Australia. No, no, just kidding. Look, not at the moment. As the governor said, the, the house prices in Australia are about to, back to where they were in 2017. What we worry about and what's got people edgy on Twitter, other economists, is the trajectory and, and the yeah. surprise. I mean, the, you know, CBA, the world, the biggest lender in in our um, economy, six months ago said house prices were going to fall 20%. You know, they're yeah. now rising by 1% a month. Um, and it's And it's... 
that kind of trajectory um, that, you know, is bubble-like. It's not now, um, but if we go 1% a month through to the end of this coming year, we will be entering bubble territory. It's always hard to judge these things in a free market, but, you know, the reality is that, you know, when house prices get I'm, – I'm most worried when it comes to housing about the social implications, and I think the biggest issue with all of these things we're talking about is – the fact that we're going to get inequality, social unrest and people left behind and all this sort of thing. And that that's down the track in this country. We're seeing it in parts of Europe and America and Trump supporters and this sort of thing. But, yeah, look, it's, 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 it's not a bubble now. It'll get very expensive. I used to say that the late 1980s, not that many people were around back then, but I oh, saw my yeah. sisters working three jobs to pay their mortgages. You know, Australians will eat rice to pay their mortgages. Um, I hope we don't test that because the missing ingredient of all of this is we're just assuming inflation's gone. If we get a surge of inflation in the next decade, we're in trouble, I think. Well, God forbid the the kids should have to give up their uh, smashed avo and uh, and Ponzi beers, you know, um, to to fall the mortgage payments. Look, I was uh, I, I I've only done I was I've only done uh, property development finance for a short stint, and it, it was a product uh, that I that I, I had back in 1989 at AGC. And our, our for, for development finance, our rates got up to 23 and a half percent, which uh, which was just bizarre. And then I was at Sanwa Bank, and uh, I remember with you know it'd be like hushed. Uh, oh, um, the, the the interest rates gone sub ten. And then it was nine. And I remember at, at Sanwa, uh, all the guys in the dealing room fixed their mortgages at 9.9%. I don't know if you remember when the state bank brought out the 10-year fixed product of 9.9. It was, my God, it's <laughs> never going to get better than that. And uh, sure enough, you know, I wouldn't like to have got caught with that. Do you remember that? Yeah, well, I, 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 my 9.9 is the stories about 5%. I'm, yeah, I'm, I'm yeah, slightly yeah. a younger generation by a few years, but it was that 5% level people started fixing. And, you know, it was that psychology. I mean, we've been in a 30-year, 40-year decline now in, yeah, in interest yeah. rates and inflation, and, it's, and they're near zero. So the big question is, the natural one is, is yeah, now we're at near zero for inflation and interest rates. Are we at a turning point? And now is the time? is it the time to fix? I think we can we can give ourselves a year or so to answer that, given that the governor's telling us the short rate's going to stay where it is until twenty twenty four. I think he's he's given us a bit of breathing space on having to answer that question. Do you think um, just, just sort of on that, um, just on that, you know, like one of the comments I was talking to to someone earlier this morning, and uh, his view is, and again, it's a little bit of emotive language, but but bear with me. He says that with the, the low interest rates and that what the central banks are doing, you're basically stealing from savers to give to borrowers. Um, you know, I'm, you know, I, I'm personally, you know, personally with my own finances, I'm very conservative, um, but theoretically, you know, I should be you know, gearing myself up for the wazoo, buying every piece of property that I can possibly afford. Interest rates are so low because I'm going to be, I'm going to get left behind by by the person who is taking risk, assuming that we still see all of this asset inflation and, and low interest rates. Isn't that right? Yeah, no, a monetary economist who's has been sort of doing this for a long time now. Um, it saddens me that there is not a nice, stable, safe interest rate. For Australians to be, you know, putting their money in the bank app for, for you know, near retirement and in retirement, you know, they're, 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 it doesn't matter if the interest rates too, 
if that's what the market is. The problem is right now Australian interest rates should be two, but they're at zero because they're trying to pump prime the economy. It doesn't matter if they're at 10. I mean, if the interest rate's at four and it should be at 10, that's telling us there's more inflation and, again, it's the same thing. So I just think, you know, ultimately Australians who have saved up People who are near retirement, in retirement, are the ones paying for this. Mm. And some of them are going to be pushed or tempted or will naturally go and, you know, take more risk. And I just hope I hope it doesn't, you know, to use that Australian term, go pear-shaped because, mm. you know, that's a lot of, lot of disciplines ended up in those nest eggs. Yeah, well, exactly. There's, there's no doubt about that. Um, I, I guess you know, I, I won't engage you too much on MMT. It's my I'm not a, I'm not a fan of MMT myself. I suspect that that you aren't as well. But you know, a lot of prominent. Economy- I don't like easy monetary policies. I don't know how I could even contemplate MMT. Uh, I don't even well, talk about it. I don't like it that much. Well, the amazing thing is, of course, you know, you've now got Keynesians are almost like right wing nut jobs compared to uh, MMT people. You know. Uh, well, that's that's right, and it's interesting because I think most people have no idea about Keynes. The 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 economists, they see about all this technical stuff and that's one of the problems with economics is it's all just quantitative rubbish. Um, Keynes was the most free market libertarian, you know, person you're going to get. I mean, he, he the reason he wanted the governments to support these market economies was because he knew that if the market economy failed, totalitarianism would take over. And we're actually in the same boat right now. I think one of the saddest things going on right now is that the problems we're seeing in these free economies are being blamed on a failure of a market economy or capitalism or market economics, and it's not. And you do need to intervene. You do need to regulate. But what you don't need to do is think that the government can solve all our problems and that there aren't going to be times where we have to face the music, i.e. the odd recession. You want to make it as mild as possible and support the economy as much as you can. But I think that's part of the problem. Well, I mean, the thing about MMT, firstly, they say there's, you know, you can print with impunity because there's no inflation. Well, the last time I, I, I went to the footy the other day, it was 12 bucks for a beer. I mean, you could have, I don't know, maybe I need to get out more often. But if there's no inflation, you, you've got to be kidding. And, um, of course, the other thing they say is that, um, that you, you know, you, the government has uh, an obligation to increase taxes in order to, to suppress prices. But the whole thing just seems uh, crazy to me. One of the, um, one of, uh, I do follow the uh, the odd progressive uh, progressive uh, on on Twitter and he made the comment the other and he must be about my vintage uh, not 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 you know not as young as yourself Warren but made the comment um, about the very fast train you know we should build the very fast train I mean should should the government be sort of spending on that kind of productive infrastructure that's uh, exactly it that is right. exactly it so you use monetary policy in the short term you got a problem cut the catch rate, see if it helps support the economy. You've got a problem, chuck some money at it with some fiscal stimulus, household payments, but that lasts, you know, at six months. The The history of where governments can make a difference is when they want to put a man on the moon, when they've got to fight wars. I mean, half this technology we're talking about came from World War II and the space race. Right. So the government has a massive role to play, but it's not throwing money at people. It's a role to help organise things that wouldn't have otherwise happened, is my view. There's a woman who gets lumped in with the MMT crowd, and maybe she is, I don't know, but she's got a book called Mission Economics um, in America. And uh, I want to get, I haven't read it, but it's this idea that, you know, you want a private economy to operate as freely as possible. You need the government to help regulate it and manage it to some extent. 
But if the government's real role, and particularly at times like now, is to do things like all the things we know, health, education, police, defence, but do some serious R&D on, on stuff that the private sector otherwise wouldn't deliver on. Well, well, I mean, no, no government ever, uh, no, no government ever um, built, you know, developed the iPhone or, um, you know, or created Amazon or any of those. Any, you no, know, but they got the basic any, technologies going. Exactly, or the or the Tesla for that. That so I suppose you could argue argue that NASA is obviously a government project. Um, yeah. Do you are you across are you across at all the the small business restructuring legislation? You know, the, the changes they made to that to that or. Well, my understanding is that we now are sort of taking that step towards the Chapter 11 model where for small businesses they can trade their way out. But, but, you know, the, the, the thing is that, uh, that no one's taken it up. I think it's, it's the last I checked, you know, we're now the 12th of February. Uh, the last I know, I think one company in all of Australia has taken it up, um, that this new SBR thing. Um, I mean, do you see this sort of thing? Do you see it having any impact? I mean, you, you've, as you said, you've been inside the banks a few times. I mean, what do you think they're talking about this? Um, look, I, 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 to be fair, I'm, I'm watching and waiting. Um, mm. I don't have a strong view. I'm obviously very interested in the broad insolvency, bankruptcy mechanisms and the way they're playing out all around the world in terms mm. of what's happening, as we've just talked about. Obviously, right now, the deferrals, um, uh, we've got to see what happens at the end of March. And then we've got this new legislation. So I'm really... I don't have a strong view. It's not my area of expertise. Um, I mean, I think generally speaking, you know, it should be a good thing for small businesses because they know their business well. But, look, I don't know if our legislation is effective and I don't know if it's going to work if we're culturally set for it like they are in America. I'm waiting and watching. Yeah. Yeah, well, look, it's. Uh, I think we all are. The trouble is, I suppose, it's... Uh, for some, it's, it, you're okay to spectate, and you can uh, and you can sort of wait and watch at your leisure. But certainly, a lot of our viewers, uh, you know, their livelihoods are sort of depending on it. Um, well, I'll, I'll just raise an interesting point. The, the treasurer has been talking about our saving rate, and that's on the yep. chart on the left, and it went up to twenty percent. And they did the numbers, and that's sort of an extra two hundred billion. I've been looking at something from a consumer sentiment survey out of the Melbourne Institute, where they ask people what's the best place to put your money. And it's very highly correlated with the savings rate, as you can see. Now, what I'll, the reason I put the picture up is that back in the GFC, as you can see, when the saving rate spiked up from almost zero to 10%, so did risk aversion in the household sector. But it hasn't happened in this time. So that tells me, and I could be wrong, we're going to have to watch this, but this tells me the Treasurer is right. I think households will spend some of this money. I mean, the household savings rate will still be very high in six months' time, but there is that buffer. So that's good news um, as we wind out of JobKeeper and the deferrals finish. And, yeah, these are real headwinds that we've got to get through in the next six yeah. months. The other one is the mortgages. Sorry. No, was, yeah, so, 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 so savings is a bit of a hollow log or a bit of a buffer against uh, against the look, That's like a buffer that's there for when JobKeeper it, runs out. It is, yeah. I mean, look, there's the income distribution issue. I think a lot of the savings are with wealthier people. But that being said, the money's there. I think it's a it's 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 a legitimate argument the government makes. And is the build up of savings deflationary? Because there's a, there's another sort of online YouTube debate about inflation versus deflation. We're going to have a big inflation. We're going to have a big deflation. Or as in all things macro, do these things cancel each other out? 
Well, no, if you have a persistent rise in savings because people are worried, that's very deflationary because that's taking demand out of the economy. That's that's your liquidity trap concept where money just gets stuck in the banking system. What I'm arguing is that that's not going to happen. We're going to get it reversing, not fully, but yeah, big, big chunk of it. The other one is just the latest ABS new mortgage data, you know, and, and, and just the surge in mortgages. So in the month of December... Um, Owner occupiers, so that's first home buyers plus what I've called here upgraders, 20 billion in new mortgages, X refi. So mm. that's a record month. Investors are starting to come back to this market. And as we were talking about before, I think investors are going to come back strongly in 2021 because they're not getting a return anywhere else. So I think the housing market, you know, I know there's a lot of talk about it, but. I think it's pretty accurate. I think it, it's going to go up pretty strongly. And I don't have the chart here, but this is being followed through with building approvals. So we're going to see construction, which will create jobs and have those positive spin-offs into the economy. So I actually think 2021, we're going to see a pretty strong snapback. Um, yeah, albeit that there's going to be a lot of sectors that are going to still be doing it really tough, you know, um, because they're exposed to the, the restricted operating environment that we're going to remain in for the next year or so. Yeah, I guess tourism and uh, and the hospos. Tra- travel, yeah. I think I think yeah. the hospitality, I mean, obviously certain parts of hospitality. So if you're focused on you know, big events or international tourism, then I think that they're not going to come back quickly. But, you know, I think you know, we're, Australians are demonstrating they're still going out to restaurants. Yeah, and I think as long as, you know, this test case in Victoria right now is interesting, you know, they're, they're trying not to, you know, overreact the, the Victorian government because presumably because the Australian Open's on, but they, we're getting better and better at jumping on these outbreaks. And I think that just means that that sort of broader, you know, food service, tourism locally, not the international yeah. stuff, will keep picking up through the course of the year. Okay. Well, look, we are uh, we are out of time. I'll just ask you maybe just for closing closing thoughts or comments. Look, the the, the concerns that, that I have, as we've talked about today, and thank you for giving me a chance to talk about them, uh, probably not all that clear, but hopefully I got some of the messages across. But, you know, these are long-standing issues and they're going to play out. In terms of this pandemic, it's been a pretty radical event for our society and our economy. But I think what we've learned now is that, that we, we actually dealt with it pretty well. And and, and overseas too, like it's, it's horrific what's happening there in terms of the health outcomes. But once you once you get you know beyond that, once the vaccines are rolled out, we're going to get back. We're going to get back. And then we're going to focus on these longer-term issues, which are about role of government, role of private sector, all these issues around socialism versus private sector responsibility. And and this is, a, I think this is a, a really challenging time for, for our, our free societies um, because we're getting this internal sort of challenge around heavy-handed role of government and we've also got these international challenges around places like China and Russia and so forth. So we just get through the pandemic. I think we're doing fantastic. We can do this. 
But then we've got some really big challenges still to have a free and open society going forward. Look, I think uh, one thing for sure is that we've always said Australia is a lucky country, and I think that's it's as true today as it's ever been. So there's, there's no doubt about that. Look, Warren Hogan, I'd like to thank you very much for being our guest today. We've had some very good feedback. Thank you, uh, Bill Coop, for your praise that we've just received there. Um, and uh, it's been a wonderful show. It's certainly been enlightening for me. So thank you very much. Uh, th thank you very much for uh, for joining us and for for helping us out with. Uh, with your wisdom and experience. Fantastic. Thanks, Nick, and I wish you all the best, and thanks, everyone, for listening. Thank you very much. Thanks to all our guests, and uh, we'll do it all again next week. Cheers.